As uh, you all know, I, I, I do like to start messages with quizzes sometime. And uh, here, my, my quiz here this morning is, what is on the screen before us? Who's got a guess? Cade, what's your guess? Books. books, exactly right. Okay, what books are they? Encyclopedias. Good guess, wrong answer. Nice try. Cade? Not Bibles. What do we hear? These are the complete works of Martin Luther. He wrote 55 volumes worth of literature that then when they finally put it together that's here. And um, it's a lot. And then he looked back on his life and uh, towards the end of his life, And out of all those things that he'd written, he was willing that all of them be destroyed, except for two. Anyone know what those two are? That's my second question today. I'd be very impressed. I didn't think so. Okay, Ruthie, what's your guess? Diatribe? close. You're on the children's notes. Not quite right. That's close. And you'll see why that was close, but you missed it a little bit. Okay, here is two books. We've got his smaller catechism, and we've got the bondage of the will. His smaller catechism and the the bondage of the will. Here's a picture of his small catechism. Um, this really book comes from his heart for Christian education. Um, he, he wrote this book for those in the church, like a, a real broad, sweeping book that people might know the fundamentals of the faith because few people in the days of the Reformation really knew what the Christian faith was about. Remember, the, the church had kept them in ignorance for many years and had not gone through the effort really to teach them to read because it was more beneficial to them for that. But this catechism teaches by way of question and answer. That goes to the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and various sacraments of the church, and was all given to help the people of the church to understand. And here's a little heart of what, what Luther said. This is his preface. He said this, The deplorable, miserable conditions which I recently observed when visiting the parishes have constrained and pressed me to put this catechism of Christian doctrine into this brief, plain, and simple form. How pitiable, so help me God, were the things I saw. The common man, especially in the villages, knows practically nothing of Christian doctrine. And many of the pastors are almost entirely incompetent and unable to teach. Yet all the people are supposed to be Christians, They've been baptized and received the Holy Sacrament even though they do not know the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, or the Ten Commandments, and live like poor animals of the barnyard and pig pen. That's why Luther is so entertaining to read. What these people have mastered, however, is the fine art of tearing all Christian liberty to shreds. And so he he wrote this book mostly to to help um, reduce the ignorance of the people around the time of the Reformation. But he also helped especially for children. Sometimes this is referred to as the the children's catechism because Luther had a great heart for the family. One scholar said that Luther placed the home at the center 
of the universe. What an appropriate message for, for Father's Day to realize that you fathers are tiny pastors of your home, which is the center of the universe. And he envisioned mom and dad at home using this book to teach the children the ways of God. That's precisely what this book is for. It's for pastors, help for them. It's for, for fathers and help with them. It's so that the, the people, by and large, might have an understanding, a basic understanding of the broadest level of the Christian faith. So that's smaller catechism, the children's catechism. And uh, his second book, The Bondage of the Will, just more colorful. This is pretty pink, right? <laughs> this is The Bondage of the Will. Um, this book is written on a more scholarly level. So the first book is very broad. This, this book is probably more, more deep on the scholarly level. However, if you start reading it, you'll find it very readable. Uh, it's free online. I encourage, I commend it to all of you. It wasn't written for the masses. It was more of an academic book. Um, it was really a, thir- a thorough theological defense of the gospel. I, I think that's why he, he treasured it so much. Uh, this book I have here is translated by J.I. Packer and by O.R. Johnstone. And, and they write about the bondage of the will. They, they say that the bondage of the will is the greatest piece of theological writing that ever came from Luther's pen. I would say amen to that. The bondage of the will is a major treatment of what Luther saw as the very heart of the gospel. It's contained right here in this book. And, and really, so in order to understand this book, though, you need to understand the historical circumstances which brought this about because it all began with a series of letters that uh, Luther uh, wrote... With this man here, who knows who this man's name is? David, what's his name? Martin Luther, not. Okay, this is Martin Luther. Okay, that was a great guess, though. We've been talking about Martin Luther the last couple Sundays. This is, this is someone else. This is his arch nemesis. Anyone know? Not, not Wesley, no? Not Zwingli. Zwingli would be a friend. Wesley would be a friend, okay? Uh, Zwingli, came, Zwingli was a, a contemporary. Wesley came uh, 200 years later, 1700s. We're talking 1500s. Erasmus. Who said that? Good job. Good job. Desiderius Erasmus. Now, Erasmus is famous for a quote he said about books. He loved books. In fact, he, he, he said this. He says, when I have a little money, I buy books. And if I have any left over, I buy food and clothes. That's what he said. He'd rather starve and have his books than uh, be clothed and, and fed. And because of his love for books and because of his appetite, his academic ability, he really became the, the Roman Catholic scholar of the day. And uh, one man said that no man in Europe could rival him in reading and writing the classical tongues. No man had such mastery of the treasures of ancient literature, both secular and patristic. No man commanded ear of Pope, Cardinal, and King as did Erasmus. So this would be your your highest scholar of the land was Erasmus. He was a Roman Catholic man. And uh, he and and Luther battled theology back in these letters they had. And Erasmus wrote a book about... These things, he said, and it was entitled this, Discussion or Coalition Concerning Free Will. Discussion or or Coalition, was a gathering together concerning free will. In Latin, that begins with the word discussion, it begins with the word diatribe. 
And so Ruthie Erasmus wrote Diatribe. It's oftentimes referred to as the Diatribe. It came off the press on September 1st, 1524, and his book was well-received, of course, by the Pope and even the king. King Henry VIII received it well. And, and the whole purpose of Erasmus' book is to put forth that human beings have free will to choose for God or not. Erasmus argued that human will has the power, and now I quote Erasmus, to apply himself to those things that lead to eternal salvation or to turn away from the same. So in other words, Erasmus is writing to say responsibility lies upon us because we have the ability to turn to God or to turn away from God. And Martin Luther discerned rightly that man's will is not free. Rather, man's will is, help me now, if it's not free, it's what? Man's will is not free, it's bound, right? It's the bondage of the will. Our, our will is, is bound and thus came from the press about a year and a year and a half later, the bondage of the will, December 1525. And by bondage of the will, Luther, Luther meant we have total inability to save ourselves. It's only by the sovereign grace of God that we are saved from our sins. In other words, our, our sin and our, because of our sin, our salvation must be entirely God's grace because we bring nothing to God. And again, I quote Packer and Johnstone who quote this, Man through sin has ceased to be good. He has no power to please God. He's unable to do anything but continue in sin. His salvation, therefore, must be wholly of divine grace, for he himself can contribute nothing to it. And any formulation of the gospel which amounts to saying that God shows grace, not in saving man, but in making it possible for man to save himself, is to be rejected as a lie. The whole work of man's salvation from first to last is God's work and all the glory for it must be God's alone. And this was just what Erasmus would not say. He would not say that our salvation from first to last is all dependent upon God. Rather, Luther said that our, our, our will is bound. In fact, our, our wills are so bound that we need a grace to save us. It was interesting I feel I wasn't planning on this, but you read from Joshua 24, and um, that's where Joshua is put forth. Here, you choose for yourselves who you're going to serve. You're going to choose the, the God of your father. You're going to choose some, some other gods. He says, for me and our house, we will serve the Lord. And then listen what, what, what they say. Um, they said, we will serve the Lord. He is our God. They were making this attempt to choose for God. And Joshua said this. Joshua said to the people, I'm just continuing where Phil left off. You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said, Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Here's their will, trying to serve the Lord, saying, we're going to serve the Lord. And Joshua again said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves. You've chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we're witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And you remember how well that worked out, don't you? About the people who said, yeah, we're going to serve the Lord. But their, their will was bound. They were bound in their sin. And what comes right after the end of Joshua? Help me. What book of the Bible? 
Judges. And what's Judges about? Mayhem and chaos and everyone just serving themselves. Because their will is bound, is bound in sin. They needed God to break through. Really what they needed is they needed Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So what they needed was they, they needed not their own will to say, yeah, we're going to serve God, but they needed God to be working in them. That's what Martin Luther was saying. We need God's grace to work out our salvation. We need God's grace that initiates salvation. We need all of God. And maybe you're here today and you've made many decisions. I'm going to follow God. I'm just going to walk this way. Well, that's in vain unless God is working in you. I refer you to my message that I, I preached from, from Philippians 2, 12 and, and 13. You might say it this way. We are saved by grace alone, which really leads us to our, our topic this morning. In recent weeks, we've been looking at the solas. That is, the onlys, the cries of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority. Sola Fide, we're saved by faith alone. Sola Gratia, we are saved by grace alone. Solus Christus, we're saved by Christ alone. And Soli Dea Gloria, we live to the glory of God alone. And, and, and these are the foundational beliefs that the Reformers had. Those who sought to reform the church away from its corruptions to simplicity and devotion to Christ. And though the reformers didn't know these phrases, they, some of them used, various ones used these, of course, but they didn't know all these, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria. They didn't know all five of those put together, but they would have wholeheartedly embraced all of them. They, would have, they all believed that the scriptures are inherent guide in spiritual matters. They, they all would have said, yes, our salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And that our lives are to be lived for the glory of God alone. And I say this. These are truths that we hold dear at Rock Valley Bible Church. We stand with the reformers in these things. In fact, that's why we're looking at the solos these months. Because this is, this is what we believe. In recent weeks, we've looked at sola scriptura and sola fide. And we come today to sola gratia. And as Luther, with Luther, I would argue that this is the core of the gospel. Grace alone is the core of the gospel. It's what all the farmers, reformers believe. Now, it's interesting. You look, at, you look at Luther, and you look at Calvin, and you look at Zwingli, and, and, and they're pretty different. Okay? Across the board, there's some differences in what they, uh, what, what they believed. In fact, I would say there's quite a bit of differences in Luther's smaller catechism than what, what we believe. Um, but there are differences in the, in the reformers about how much to separate from the Catholic Church. Some, like Luther, said, well, if it's not denied in the Bible, let's stay as close as we can. That's why Lutheran Church today is very much like a Catholic Church. There are others like Zwingli, on the other hand, who was way on the other side and said, let's not pull anything in unless it's explicitly declared in the Scripture. Calvin was somewhere right in between, and they had... Issues about that. They had issues about how to administer baptism, where Zwingli was an immersionist, where others, Calvin and Luther, believed in, in sprinkling infants and baptizing infants. So the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. I mean, all of them. Luther had one view, and Calvin another view, and Zwingli had another view. Their manner of worship, whether songs should be in the church or not. Luther believed so strongly that, that songs should be used. And Zwingli, who was a musician himself, knew the power of song. He said, no, it shouldn't be used because it's, it's fleshly. They had discussions and differences in terms of the polity of the church, whether it's more of an, an elder, local thing, whether it's bishops and cardinals, more like the Catholic church. 
and how that was. But, so they had, they had all these different things, but on this core they were all united and they all stood firm on all these solas and particularly here on the sola gratia. They all believed utter helplessness of man because of his sin. They all believed in the sovereignty of God in giving grace. And they all believed, you got to catch this, that, that this is the very lifeblood of the church. This doctrine here on, uh, on the bondage of the will. I, I want to give you an extended quote of what Packer says in the introduction. Kind of some, We're not, we're not going to go through a lot of this, but I want to get you to understand what Luther wrote. He says, The doctrine of free justification by faith only that's what we looked at last week, which became the storm center of so much controversy during the Reformation period is often regarded as the heart of the Reformers' theology. Like we often hear, right? Luther, we think justification by faith. And we say, well, that's the heart of their theology. And Packer and Johnstone say, but this is hardly accurate. The truth is that their thinking was really centered upon the contention of Paul echoed by varying degrees of adequacy by Augustine in the 400s, or Gottschalk, I don't know who he is, or Brandwardine, a couple hundred years before Luther, or Wycliffe, a hundred years before Luther. And, and the sinner's entire salvation is by free and sovereign grace only. I mean, this was historically believed in the church, but others didn't believe it, but it has been taught clearly, because it's what Apostle Paul taught. It's what Jesus taught. The doctrine of justification by faith was important to them because, here it is, it safeguarded the principle of sovereign grace. But it actually expressed for them only one aspect of this principle, and that not in its deepest aspect. The sovereignty of grace found expression in their thinking at a profounder level still in the doctrine of monergistic regeneration. Okay, catch that, monergistic regeneration. We'll we'll talk about that here in a little bit. The doctrine that is that the faith which receives Christ for justification is itself the gift of a sovereign God bestowed by spiritual regeneration in the act of effectual calling. To the reformers, the crucial question was not simply whether God justifies believers without works of the law. We talked about that last week in Galatians and in Romans. It was the broader question of whether sinners are wholly helpless in their sin and whether God is to be thought of as saving them by free, unconditional, invincible grace, not only justifying them for Christ's sake when they come to faith, but also raising them from the death of sin by his quickening spirit in order to bring them to faith. Here was the crucial issue, whether God is the author, not merely of justification, but also of faith, whether in the last analysis, Christianity is a religion of utter reliance on God for salvation and all things necessary to it, or the self-reliance of self-effort. Justification by faith only is a truth that needs interpretation. The principle of sola fide is not rightly understood till it is seen as anchored in the broader principle of sola gratia. Okay, so that may have, have gone over your head a little bit. That may have sunk right into where, uh, right where, where you are. But I want to uh, may, maybe draw you a picture. <clears throat> Here's sola gratia. Picture... Uh, picture the ground, picture a foundation of the ground, picture um, concrete laid down, the foundation of a, of a house, and then picture sola fide on top of that. That's what J.I. Packer and John Stone were saying, that, that without sola gratia, 
sola fide falls. But sola fide stands and is the expression of sola gratia. Or, like he used this word, let me give you two words. There's monergism and there is synergism. Okay? Monergism means, mono was mono mean? One. Urgism, was urgism mean? Huh? Work. It means energy. So here we got mono is one. Urgism is energy. Salvation is a work of God alone. That's monergism. In fact, monergism.com is one of the best websites on the web. Go there. Tons of resources about this. Okay, let's talk about synergism. What does sin mean? S-Y-N, not S-I-N. Sin, it seems like something bad you do, but S-Y-N means what? Help me. Together. A synagogue is a og means leading, soon means with, leading together with. It's a synagogue. It's a gathering. Okay, and urgism again is is work. So synergism with working, God cooperates with us in our salvation. This is why, by the way, a Roman Catholic church, a Roman Catholic church believes in salvation by grace because the grace of God comes, but the, the, the human will, though, cooperates. But the reformers said, no, no, it's not like that. It is monergism. It is salvation is a work of God alone. Monergism is sola gratia. Synergism is Erasmus. All right. Um, any degree of cooperation is synergism. So it could be halfway. It could be God most of the way. So I, I want to illustrate by this. Okay. We've been trying to sell our big conversion van. All right. This is a screenshot from... Uh, from Craigslist, and uh, our family shrinking. Our two oldest off in college, and we don't need it as much. And by the way, it's guzzling a ton of gas. If any of you want to buy a gas guzzler, you can talk with me, and maybe we can buy it. That'd be okay. All right, we put it on Craigslist, put it on, I think, nine, day, nine days ago, and I've received almost a call every day or an email every day about this, asking questions, right? What, what's, what's the mileage on it? What's the exact mileage? What about rust or chips in the paint? What about on the interior? Are there stains and rips in the carpet or on the, on the seats? Or have you done major work on the vans? the air conditioning work? What size is the engine? Is it a V6 or a V8? Or is it just six? Is it, is it a V or is it what? And some of those I say yes, and some of those I can try to figure out what's, what's happening. They've asked about the hits. They've asked about anything. But it's interesting. With a couple of calls, it's reached the point of wanting to see it. And with a couple of them, I've got some uh, emails from people who live in Wisconsin, and they have said... Well, we live in Wisconsin, and Rockford's a long ways away, and so um, could you maybe meet us in, in Beloit? Maybe come, and so we don't have to come all the way, or meet us in Janesville, and then we can, can, can do that, and it's a halfway point. That, what if you're meeting on a halfway point? What is that? Synergism. All right, that's a synergism, right? I've got my van, I'm trying to sell it, and so I drive my van halfway, they, they, they drive it halfway. And, and as I researched how to sell a van on Craigslist, I resolved that they, they weren't going to come to our house, but they're going to go to Sam's parking lot. I said, uh, no, I can't do that. How about Sam's parking lot? Uh, and it was the great thing about Sam's parking lot, it's close to our house, and uh, it's like a two-minute drive, 15-minute walk. I could, walk. I could go, I could sell the car, I could walk home, so I don't even have to bring another car. I could, I could do that, it's, it's close by. 
Um, but everyone knows where Sam's is. You don't say, oh, the Walmart on Riverside or the Walmart on, you know, State Street or the Walmart on the West Side. You, you don't have to say that. You just have to say Sam's Club. There's only one Sam's Club in the Rockford area. It's right off the tollway coming down, coming down from Wisconsin. Boom, it would be right there. And uh, so I said, how about you? You mean, I said, it's Sam's Club. If you want to see the car, you can do that. What about meeting at Sam's Club? What's that called? Synergism. See, because I'm driving two minutes, and they're driving two hours. But it's still synergism. Because it's me doing something and them doing most. And that's what most Roman Catholics think. They think that, see, God's doing most, but it's just a, a little bit. By the way, most Protestants think this too. They don't understand the solas of, of uh, the Reformation. They think that, well, I, I do this little part, and then God brings me the rest of the way. That's synergism. You know what monergism is? Modernism is, you want to see my car? I'll tell you, come to my house. I'll give you my address. You, you come to my house, and they come to the house, and they take the key, and they put it in the ignition, and they start the car, and they drive it away. That's monergism of them doing everything. Sadly, as I said, many Protestants believe in synergism. I, I'm bringing something, right? I came to God with my faith. I, I came to God with my prayer. I came to God when I understood. I, I read that book, and that was my understanding. It's not much, but, but, but I responded to God, and that was, that was my thing. That's not the position of the Reformers, okay? And I don't think that's the position of the Bible. And I would argue with, with Luther, that's not the gospel, that's not good news. It says, well, I respond a little bit and God does everything else. That's not the gospel. Now, many people have been saved by that. God saves through faulty gospel messages. God saves through faulty churches. God saves through faulty means all the time. Now, God, God can do that, certainly, but it's not the gospel. So the gospel is monergism. The gospel is sola gratia. That's what Luther was fighting for in his book. So let's now think about sola gratia. The, my, my, our pattern in this series has been to talk... First half of my message about theology, historical circumstances, and then we've gone to the scriptures to see where this is true. And there's no better place to go than Ephesians chapter 2. So let's turn to Ephesians 2. This is one of the clearest places in the Bible that, that teach these things. Ephesians chapter 2 shows that our condition before being saved, what God does in our salvation, and I trust you see, sola gratia comes flying out of this but by the way i love preaching grace grace is huge to us in the brandon household i'm not sure you know this but our oldest daughter's name is chris do you know what her middle name is grace and our second daughter's name is hannah do you know what hannah's middle name is grace and our third daughter she's in the nursery serving today i think uh her middle stephanie her middle name is grace grace is huge in the brandon household how about, how about this do you know what carissa means Grace from Karis means grace. Uh, do you know what Hannah means? You know what Hannah means? Come on. Come on. Grace. Um, uh, Carissa, is, is grace in what language? Greek, the New Testament. Hannah is grace in what language? Hebrew or the Old Testament. Okay. What does Stephanie mean? It means Steve, right? <laughs> we messed up there. We did look at other languages for grace, but it just, it just, it just, it just didn't work. But that's Stephanos, by the way, means crown. Um, 
So my, the names we've given our daughters, it's been Grace, 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 Stephanie, Grace. Okay, which is appropriate this Father's Day to, to mention that. Grace is huge in the Brandon home. Grace is huge at Rock Valley Bible Church. Okay, another question. What, what is the, what's the slogan of our church? All right, here we go. Everyone say it together. Good. Enjoying his grace and extending his glory. There's, there's, a, there's a reason why enjoying his grace. It's on the back of all of our Rock Valley Bible Church shirts. You've got one. Shirley, are you the only one today? You got one? You stand and model it. Oh, you got one, Drew? Everyone with a Rock Valley Bible Church shirt on. Go ahead and stand up, Drew. And Shirley, go ahead and stand up. Yeah, you see right there on the back. Enjoying his grace, extending his glory. And, and I will say this, that I, I so enjoy the grace of God. And, and all who are saved, if you rightly understand monergism, you will love and enjoy the grace of God. And I, my hope and prayer as we think about just our, our slogan is that we would gather here often and just enjoy the grace of God. Not what my hands have done can save this sinful soul. These filthy hands I bring, I bring nothing to God. And he gives me and clothes me in his righteousness. That is, that's grace. That is grace, and we ought to come and enjoy that. And when we enjoy that, we'll be so stirred that we will go out and extend that. It's how our church works. We enjoy the grace, and then we go and extend his glory. And I say extending his glory. Why not extending his grace? Well, because a lot of times we offer grace to people. They don't want it. And so God in his glory will condemn them to hell and will be more glorified because they've heard this message of grace that they've refused. So, chapter 2, but before we get to chapter 2, I want to look at Paul's prayer in chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him. There it is. Paul says, I'm praying for you that you would really know these things. That he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him and and his works. And and how? Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. There's a mixed metaphor. Your, Your heart seeing but being opened up. Just your heart so enlightened so you know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. He's talking here about just the, the marvelous grace and power of God that comes to us undeserved. And so what I'd like to do is in the spirit of my preaching this morning, I want to so, so exalt the grace of God that you come and love it and won't let go of it. Because it's interesting, as Luther wrote, The Bondage of the Will, um, I don't have this quote handy, but Erasmus is saying, eh, this, it doesn't really matter how exactly grace comes or whether your will is, but what, what matters really is that you'll believe and trust in Jesus. And he's just trying to, like, he's just saying the peace is what's most important, is what Erasmus was saying. And, and Luther said, no, this is the foundation of the gospel. This is what you have to understand. This is, this is the core of everything. So for him, it's stirred. And so likewise, I just want to pray that 
that this message of grace would stir in your heart so you'd feel like Luther, this, this passion. So let's pray. <clears throat> Fathers, as I, as I try to put forth now the glories of, of grace, I pray, oh God, you give me wisdom how to, how to communicate that and that you'd give my hearers and you give all of us this wisdom that Paul prayed for to see the glories of the pure gospel of God. Uh, I pray, God, that you give us hearts that see our hope we have in Christ, the riches we have in Christ, his great power towards us, God, which has been all determined and given by you. So, God, touch our hearts this morning. I know the first half of my message was focused on the head, and I pray that this half of the message, God, would be focused on the heart and that you would stir us afresh God, in, the, in the grace of God. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Ephesians 2, 1. <clears throat> and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We stop here and think about our state before God. Paul says, verse 1, that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. He says in verse 3 that we were by nature children of wrath. That's the astonishing effect of sin. Sin kills. Adam and Eve created sinless. They received the blessing of God, but when they, they sinned, they became sinners and eventually died. And as they sinned, the image of God within them was was marred, is what theologians often say. It was distorted. It is still there. James 3 speaks about how we're still made in the image of God, and yet there's something that's twerked about it because we have been born into sin. In fact, this is our, our nature. When children are born, they're born into sin. That's what, what uh, David said in Psalm 51. In sin, my mother conceived me. That's not that the act of conception was a sin. It was into this realm of sin I was conceived even in the womb is where I was conceived there. We are by nature sinners. And as a result, we are, as Paul says, by nature under the wrath of God. It's a condition of every human being that enters the world. We're sinners under God's wrath. And on top of that, we are dead, dead spiritually. Of course, it doesn't mean we can't move and act. But it, it, it says that we spiritually, we are, are dead to the things of God. We're dead spiritually in other words, when it comes to our spiritual lives before Christ, we're all dead. We're all numb to the things of God. I mean, you, you can stay here in Ephesians, but I, I just want to read for you 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person, okay, this is, this is the by nature person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And here it is, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, a natural man is dead to the things of God because the things of God are discerned spiritually. And if, if you're not alive spiritually, you can't discern those things. Which is one reason, by the way, why we're, we're dead. God needs to make us alive. Uh, uh, a great illustration of this is a, is a radio antenna. Today we've got our cell phones and we've got all this stuff in the air, but we can't hear it because we're dead to the cell phone stuff or the FM. I, I'm not sure any with braces, maybe you teenagers can go like this and, and, and get an FM radio. You can't do that. 
But we need to have this mechanism to take all these waves in the air and translate it into something meaningful. And so likewise, if you're dead in your sin, you, you can't understand all the waves going on. You can't understand the spiritual truth until God does something in your heart to open your eyes. That's what it means to be dead spiritually. We're, we're numb to the things of God. Had a, had a great example this Friday. Well, as most all of you know, right, a, a group of teens and a few parents went to Old Settlers Day in Rockford. Basically, the, the town fair, it's a vanity fair is really what it is. Come for concerts and rides and candy corn and popcorn. Lots of people there. And I think it was Rachel. I think it was your idea. I'm not sure. You said, hey, let's hand out tracks there. And so maybe it's Chuck, maybe your dad. I don't know whose idea it was. But we, we went out there. We had probably about 10 or 12 of us, something like that. And uh, we, we portioned ourselves kind of at strategic places along the way, kind of leading to the entrance and gave people. That we handed out about 1,000 tracks uh, on Friday, 150 Gospels of John. I said, kids, you can't go until you give away everything. And so we just, we just dumped our bags and gave everybody everything that, just putting the Word of God in people's hands. And, and those of you who are there, you can tell that there are many people who are hard, and, and you gave them a tract, right? You, you gave them... We passed out a 1,000 of these, 900 of these, I think. Are you a good person, right? Giving it, hey, here's your cartoon. Why don't you look at it? And, and you could tell a lot of people didn't like it. Some people, even I, I found out later, as I walked around, crumpled it up and didn't like it. Uh, what was interesting is we had some po- people posted, oh, probably about a quarter mile up the road. And so they got it in the Hunaniga parking lot, and then they walked all the way to the fair. And there was a time when I went back to check on them, and I saw some people like this. Kind of, kind of reading this thing. It was, it was very strategic, by the way, to, to do that. Chuck, there's a, a little note. Make them walk a long ways with this, and they're, they're reading it. Some people even reading it out loud to their friends. Just kind of reading this and, and going along. And some people were reading it and scoffing at it. Wow, <laughs> look at this. Look at what they're saying. Right? But there were lots of people who were dead to these things. Didn't want it. Hated it. Oh, that's got, oh I, don't want, I, don't, I don't want that. You can see that, that they were... They were dead to those things. They were all thinking about the fun time they're going to have carousing with the opposite sex. Many people were doing that, right? Hannah, you think so? I think so. But why do we hand out these tracts? Because of our hope in verse 4. In verse 4, we read this. We read, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, you hand out a tract to somebody, you preach the gospel to somebody with the hope of verse 4 that God will act. Not with the hope that you're going to become so, so winsome and, and encouraging and able to answer all of their debates. No, you're hoping and you're praying for God to open eyes. For, for God to, as it says here, bring a dead person to life. Do you know when anybody ever becomes a Christian, it's just as miraculous as when Jesus rose from the dead. He was dead physically and God made him alive. And we were dead spiritually. And God made us alive. So we're alive, so now we can live for God. Have you ever noticed that dead men don't respond? You go to a funeral and you see a body in a casket. I don't care how much prodding you do, poking, shouting, shaking. A corpse isn't coming to life. It won't come to life again unless, like Lazarus, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, the the power of God comes into a corpse and opens it up, and Lazarus stands and comes out of the tomb. 
That's the only way that a corpse will rise from the dead. And that's the only way that a sinner will ever come to Christ. Is if God works a work in their life so as to open and see and understand. I remember John Gerstner telling the story about how he was in a, a Bible college one time going, and he was, he was a young college student, maybe 18, maybe 19, whatever, and he's in theology class, and the theology professor talking about how regeneration precedes faith and kind of went on, and, and Gerstner went, what, 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 what no, 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 I, I, think, I think you missed your words up there, you said regeneration precedes faith, I think you meant to say faith precedes regeneration, and he said, no, no, it's regeneration precedes faith. And, and here's the idea, and I think this is totally scriptural, is that what happens is God breaks in upon someone. He, he, he's moving in their life. Like Proverbs 21, verse 1 says that the king's heart is like channels of, of water in the hands of God. He, he moves it wherever he wants. He's doing that with our president. He'll do that with the next president. He's doing that with Syria, or he's doing that with Korea, or he's doing that with Russia, or he's doing that with Albania. He's doing he, God guides the king's heart, and if he guides the king's heart, he certainly guides our hearts. And what God does is he so guides the heart that circumstance, he brings circumstances into life, and, and he, he brings people to scriptures, whatever, to, to see there, and then at some point he makes alive, he regenerates someone, and then they're open, and then they see and believe. That's how it works. Regeneration precedes faith. It's monergism. Our faith comes from our regeneration. Our faith doesn't cause our regeneration. Many people believe that. And it's wrong. It's not that we believe and then we are born again. You look at John chapter 3 when Jesus talked about Nicodemus. And he says, you must be born again. He doesn't say, be born again. Like, that's something that Nicodemus could do. Like, you believe so that you get born again. No, he says, you must be born again. In order to see the kingdom of heaven, God needs to come and act upon you. And when he acts upon you... You'll repent and believe, which are the gifts of it. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. But that's, that's how it works. Regeneration precedes faith because dead men don't respond. In fact, the whole idea here, that, that's what grace is. It is taking a dead person and making him alive. You just think about, the, think about this new birth terminology. First uh, Peter, uh, you can stay there in Hebrews. I'm just going to read this verse in First Peter uh, chapter 1 and verse 3, uh, it speaks about being born again. And, and listen to what, what it says. In First Peter 1, <clears throat> verse 3, when I get there, here I am, I'm right there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, it's, it's God who causes regeneration. And when he changes someone to be a spiritual man, then they can understand. But until they're regenerate, they cannot understand, 1 Corinthians 2.14. It's not that you believe and then are changed. It's that God changes you and then you believe because you're changed because you see all of a sudden. And grace is grace when it's all of God. If it's part us and part God, it's not grace. It's not biblical grace. Let me say that again. Grace is grace when it's all of God. If it's part of us and part of God, synergism, it's not grace. I don't care what you call it. It's not that. Okay, so yesterday I had a graduation party for Aisha Spates. Are they here at Spates? I think they're probably wiped out from their party. I'm not sure, but had a good time. I uh, saw several of you there. It was a good time. We, we came to rejoice with her. 
She graduated from high school. And of course, when you come to those things, it's a, it's a, it's a great thing. They, they provide food and people and a place, and they'll clean up, and we provide a little gift to help Aisha on, and it's an expression of our, our love to Aisha, an expression of our joy. Yes, you have graduated. You've been faithful. You put all this work in. We're rejoicing with you, and a little to help her on her way for her next step. That's a gift, but that's not fully the sovereign grace we're talking about here, because in some measure, Aisha earned that gift. Years of working hard. Finally, our high school days are over. It's time to celebrate. And so we come. They, they, they prepare food we, we, and the place, and we, we bring gifts. That, that's not grace. Grace is the boy in high school who gets into trouble at school, carouses with the girls, refuses to do his work, expresses hatred toward teachers, even physically assaults them. Spends time in juvenile detention centers as a result of it. Drops out of school. Doesn't get his GED. He's not interested in that. Refuses to look for a job to support himself. He just sits at home. Engages in the drug culture. Contracts AIDS. And then we throw a party for him. And lavish him with gifts. Sounds a lot like a prodigal son, right? That's grace. It's nothing he earns. It's totally what God does. Remember, the prodigal son took halfway inheritance, squandered it. Yet God threw a party for him. That's grace. It's mercy and love. In fact, mercy and love are are right here. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. Mercy is you're standing before a judge, and rather than getting what you deserve, just withholding that. But see, love, mercy and love, not only withholds, but love then lavishes and gives. That's, That's the picture of grace, mercy and love not giving what you don't deserve, and then giving what you don't deserve. Not giving what you do deserve, and then giving what you don't deserve. And that's what's used here. And the response here, by the way, is praise. Go back to chapter 1. Look at how Paul begins. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I think it was a King James. I didn't check this, but chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to God. That's what it means. Blessed be. There's praise to God who has blessed us with all these blessings. And you say, what has he blessed you with? Well, he just starts listing them off. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is praise to God for all the spiritual blessings he has given to us. This is praise to God for God's grace. In fact, verses four, 3, 4, 5, and 6 are all about God's grace to us. Look what it says. It says, election. The idea of election is grace. Verse 5, the idea of predestination is grace. God's choosing us. And predestining us before the foundation of the world, that is, before we'd done anything good or bad, before we even existed, before the world was created, God shows us that's total grace because it's not on us. It's God monergistically saying, that's a soul I'm going to save. That's grace. And God in his sovereign pleasure chose those to whom he extend his grace. Uh, unmerited. Now, it's interesting. I've heard a lot of people, when they come to this passage, they say this. No, it's not like that. 
It's not that God, before the foundation of the world, chose irrespective of, of what we did. It's not unconditional election. It's conditional election. He chose us by looking down, right? What was he looked down? Have you heard this before? The quarter of time. I don't know why they, everyone uses this phrase, but they always use this phrase, the corridor of time. I don't know what, whatever. You look down the corridor of time, and God says, oh, oh, I, oh, I see Steve's going to choose. Yep, yep, oh, oh, oh. Oh, I see Yvonne's going to choose. These are the people I'm going to elect. That's not monergism. That's not election. That's synergism. That's not sola gratia. The whole idea of God's electing and predestining is such that it makes salvation entirely a work of God in our hearts. Nothing in my hands I, I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's our response is only to the cross of Christ. Now, did you notice that in verse 6, it's all called grace? Blessed be God for this, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Grace leads us to worship. Chapter 1 leads us to worship in the present. Chapter 2 leads us to worship in the future. Look at verse 7. I've not got there yet, but 7. God made us alive, verse 4, because of his mercy and love. And then he gets there in verse 5. By grace you've been saved. He's pounding this. You've been saved by grace. So, and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, just as Jesus had been raised and seated high. This is Ephesians 1. So also we've been raised and seated high. So that, verse 7, in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his, what's the word there? Of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is my favorite verse in all the Bible. Because it speaks about our, our future purpose in heaven. And our future purpose in heaven is to show off God's grace. That's why we're in heaven, is to show off God's grace. That's what it says. So that in the ages to come, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he's going to look at Dirk Reed and he's going to say, look at Dirk. He's here. Ha. My grace totally is why he's here. He's going to look at Steve Brand and say, Steve Brand, see him? <laughs> My grace totally is why he's here. And, and any of you, he's going to look upon you and say, Look, look at this person was dead in sins. I made him alive. I brought him here by my grace and he is enjoying my glory because of my grace. You are saved so as in the future you can give praise to God for his grace in your life. None of us there will be able to boast of anything that we have done. We've not deserved any of these heavenly blessings. We've not, we've not done anything. In fact, in many ways, that's, that's the point here. Of, um, of verse 8. By grace, you've been saved through faith. He saves us by grace so that in the ages to come, he can magnify his grace. So here's why this is my favorite verse. is because it gives purpose to our lives. It gives purpose to the whole universe. You say, why did God create the earth? Well, think about what, what the world would have been before God created the world. Did he receive praise? Yes, he did. He had angels. And he created angels, sinless beings who praised him. Never rebelled against the Lord. So he could never send them to hell because they had never rebelled. They'd obey God in every jot and tittle of anything that God said. And so you think about if, if God hadn't created mankind, uh, around him would be angelic beings who, who praise him because they're pure and majestic beings. And then you've also got fallen angels, of course, who are cast away into hell. God could have showed his justice by sending those angels to hell. But what's missing? 
The angels could have, have worshipped God for his, his glory and honor and power and wealth and wisdom and honor and might. But he could never be praised for his grace. In other words, he could be praised for his greatness, but not be praised for his goodness. Because angels, in some regards, have merited because they haven't been sinful. But because with sin, God created a world that sin would come and that grace should be needed. And and those who didn't deserve anything got the grace of God so that we are in heaven. We bring grace to heaven. That's why 1 Peter 1.12 speaks about angels long to look into the grace that Christ has given to his people. Because they don't know it experientially. They're like, well, they're experiencing it and they long to look into that. But we are going to bring grace to heaven. We're going to be able to to share that. And so that's the reason why we're in heaven. So to take anything away and say, well, I brought this. God, yes, you saved me by your 99.9% grace. But my point one got me there to begin with. That you're just taking away glory from God. You're taking away the whole purpose of your existence in heaven is to give all praise and glory to God for your grace of his kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. In heaven, we're like, we're like trophies that God has redeemed. We, we put trophies on display on, on mantles or on display boxes or in, in cabinets or something like that. So that others come to see, yeah, look at the trophies I got. My fencing trophies, right, Nathan? You got your fencing trophies there. You got your, your ribbon. You, you too, right? You maybe, are you getting more than him? No, not yet. But someday you will, maybe. And so you, you, got, you got all these trophies up there. Your swimming medals or your, your soccer medals or your, you know, your football thing. Whatever you got, you put those and they're on display right there. And people come in, they see them and say, wow, you've, you've done a lot. I'm, that's really good. Very rejoicing in, in what they are. And, and those trophies are just like a memento of something bigger that you did. When we're in heaven, we are God's trophies. That's what verse 10 says, we're his workmanship. We are trophies in heaven. So when God looks at us, he says, yes, that's just like a memento, a reminder of everything that I did, my purpose upon the earth. If we take any credit for our presence in heaven, the trophy's tainted. I thought about those of you into football, Okay, if you're not, just tune out. That's okay. But who won the Super Bowl this past year? Who? Who's going to win the Super Bowl next year? All mayhem breaks loose, right? I know that. Okay, so, so the Patriots won it last year. But if you know anything about football, you know that there's been this uh, discussion about whether Tom Brady you know, orchestrated the deflation of the Super Bowl. So the, the balls are a little softer so he could throw them just a, a little bit better. And, and the question that goes around the sports circles, because what else are you going to talk about football in the offseason? So you talk about these deflated footballs and whether, here's the question, is their championship tainted because of these footballs? Okay, there's a big, there's a big question about that. And, and I'm not here to say what, what my opinion is, but there are opinions all, all over the place. But here, think about what it is. You just, just a little bit of air pressure in these balls are causing people to say, tainted trophy. You know what? If you take just a little bit of credit for what you did on behalf of God's grace, your trophy is tainted. And I don't care how minuscule it is, even if it's just a few pounds of air pressure, your trophy becomes tainted. I'll just say this. Anything less than sola gratia puts a similar question about tainting a trophy in mind. Are the trophies that you will be of God's grace truly God's grace? Are they all God's grace? 
or was it something that, that we did? And when you suspect the Patriots cheated in some measure, you're, you're attaining that trophy. And by claiming it's something to do with your salvation, some measure, however small, you take away from the glory of the grace of God. And, and I so love the grace of God, and I trust you love the grace of God. You don't want to take anything away from the grace of God because your salvation is all about grace. That's what verse 8 says. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Listen, if you are a believer in Jesus this morning, know that it's by grace you've been saved. It's not because of your works. We, we read that today. Titus 3.5 in our scripture reading from the hymnal. Right. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. How? How did he save us by his mercy? By the washing of regeneration, knowing by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are plenty of people on the synagogue side that said, well, I brought my faith to God. Isn't that what verse 8 says? Look, by grace you've been saved. Yes, but it's through faith. See, the, the, the faith isn't God's faith. It's my faith. I believed. I'm bringing that to the equation. And I simply respond, well, finish the verse, please. The verse says, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So, yes, you believed. But where did you get the faith? God gave you the faith. Your boasting is something that God gave you as if you did it. And, and God, by the way, saves us by faith because that's the... Think about it. If he saved us by love, we'd have to like express our love. But faith, we could just open up our hands and say nothing. But as it says, God gives us that faith. It's, it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So what is not your own doing? And I say verse 8 says, nothing is my own doing. It's totally a, a gift of God. It's not a result of works 9 that no one boasts. You, in other words, verse 9 says you can't boast about anything. But if you say it was my faith, I figured it out. I, the only reason you figured it out is because God gave you enlightenment so as you could understand and, and figure it out. You have nothing to bring to the table. It's all of grace. God gives grace. God gives faith. God gives repentance. Several places in the book of Acts speak about how God granted repentance. God gives repentance to people. So, see, when, when God commands something, like when Jesus came upon the scene, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're totally unable to until God gives them repentance, and then they repent and they believe. See, God is the one who gives, and he initiates. Acts 11, verse 18, when they're figuring about Cornelius, they, they said, okay, well, the Gentiles... Also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's the sheer sovereign grace of God that brings us to himself. Apart from God's acting in our life, first, monergistically, we would be dead in our sins. All right, well, I got more here. We could go to a lot more passages of Scripture. We could go to Romans chapter 9. We could go to John chapter 3. We could go to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. There's lots of places. We go to Jesus in John chapter 6. He spells this out clearly. We go to John chapter 8. All these things are, are spelled out so clearly. I just focus on this because it's so marvelous here. But I want to I bring us back to Martin Luther and Erasmus. In one letter, and I don't know whether this was before or after the whole books came out, Martin Luther wrote to Erasmus. He says, Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. In other words, Erasmus, you just think of God here. But see, God is so much more glorious. 
think of God as God gives himself to us and totally beyond us, and then you'll begin to see his grace. You'll see how he needs to break the bondage of our sin. Well, there's, there's certainly more, more to, to say here, but I, I just say Martin Luther in the time of the Reformation experienced a mighty work of God when God was working. When God was turning people from their sin and to Christ, and it's the apostles, they, they said, we can't help but to speak of the things that we have seen and witnessed. And that's the issue. I mean, that's the issue why you would hand out tracts. That's why the issue why you would speak the gospel with people. That's the issue why you would, would love so as to say, Christ has changed my life. I just want to share that message. Maybe God will open your hearts to change your life through the same message. And as God was in work of the Reformation, he's in the heart working, granting faith today. I just say, do you know that grace? Has God worked on you? Do you know that repentance? Because if you do this, the signs will be giving all glory to grace of God. It's signs to be not being able to stop speaking of the grace you've experienced. Well, let's, let's pray. Father, we, we don't profess to understand how, how all this works because it sure does feel, O oh God, like we're the ones that believed. And yet the scripture says we believe because you gave us belief. I, I think of um, in the man whose son you healed. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. God, we need you to help our unbelief. Lord, I would pray that Rock Valley Bible Church, we would truly enjoy your grace. That your grace would become precious to us and everything to us, that we might protect it and lift it high. Because the only hope upon which we stand, we're not going to stand on our own works of righteousness or goodness, which is good news, God, because... If we start our salvation, we can end our salvation just as easily. But, if God, if you start us and regenerated us, there's no doctrine in the Bible that says that you degenerate people. So if you've truly changed us, God, we can trust and rest that you can't lose the one whom you've changed. And so in that, God, we do rest. Help us wrestle with these things. God, I, I pray perhaps for the soul that doesn't believe these things. God, they might look to the scriptures. They might, might read, really think deep, God, about about the gospel. This, this is the glories of the gospel at stake, God, so change us. Help us. Grant us faith, repentance here at Rock Valley Bible Church. I pray for Vacation Bible School. I pray you do that in the lives of these children who come. I pray you do that in the lives of adults who bring their children to Vacation Bible School so they hear their kids come back. I pray you'd add people to our church because you do a work in their hearts this week. God, but I'm praying to you because I believe you're the one that changes people. You're the one that breaks into people's hearts. I'm praying to you, God, for the salvation of souls because I believe in sola gratia. Apart from that belief, I, I w- couldn't pray for the salvation of people. God, so save people, God. Add them to our church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.